Hello and welcome again to Storytime with Boone. This is episode nine. Thanks again for downloading it. Next week, something special. Once a month, I record my podcast live at Red Tree Barbecue Restaurant in Manchester. Last month, my special guest was Bez. Check that one out. Episode five. Next Wednesday night, that's the 9th of March, I'll be joined by a British broadcasting legend, Terry Christian for a live face-to-face chat at Red Street Barbecue. You could be one of only 50 people who will be invited along to join us. Tickets are free, and to apply for tickets, go to boon.eventsbright.co.uk. Use the password Terry, and you could be sat having a drink and a chat with me and Terry in Manchester next Wednesday night. On this episode, I'll tell you about the time me and the Inspiral Carpets went on a wine-tasting tour at a very posh vineyard in France. What happened the time that I was persuaded reluctantly to come into work early to interview a chap who was about to release his first record. He went on to become one of the most successful recording artists of all time. And I'll tell you what happened when I met one of my heroes, Michael Stipe of R.E.M. And, well, you guessed it, and it didn't quite go the way that I would like it to have gone. There's a bit of a pattern here, isn't there, on these podcasts. Clint meets one of his heroes, having had a bit too much to drink and makes a complete tool of himself. Anyway, I'll tell you the Michael Stipe story in a little bit. On each episode, I talk about what inspired a particular song that I've written over the years. And on this podcast, I'll be talking about an Inspiral Carpets song, which came about in a very unusual manner. Uh, it's a song called Two Worlds Collide. The unsigned artist that you're going to hear at the end of this episode is a young girl from Manchester called Amber Lane McIver with an absolutely heavenly track called Tree of Life. If you're an unsigned band or artist and you want to get in touch with me, the best way to do it is on Twitter. You'll find me at The Real Boon. Send me a link to your music and I'll do my best to have a listen to it. As you know, Storytime with Boone is produced by Distorted Productions and thank you as always to Red's True Barbecue in Manchester for supporting us. Each week I put together a Spotify playlist where you can hear the full versions of the tracks on the episode and lots of other tracks as well which come to mind while I'm chatting to you. Okay, let's do it. Storytime with Boone with Red's True Barbecue. Once upon a time in the east of France where where the days are busy with the making of heavenly wines. That's a nice sentence to start a story with that, isn't it? Once upon a time in the east of France where the days are busy with the making of heavenly wines, a scruffy bunch of rock and rollers from Oldham rolled into town. The town was called Bern and it was uh, famous for its uh, Pinot Noir and, uh, and Chardonnay grapes, which kept the local winemaking industry very prolific in its manufacture of both red and white wines. That's what it was famous for. The rock and roll band were called you guessed it, in spiral carpets. And they were famous for their clown-like dress, it's fair to say, and ridiculous haircuts. And they had some good tunes as well. It was early early 1990s, so it's when Manchester was still king. Britpop hadn't been christened yet. And we arrived in town early in the morning in uh, preparation for a gig uh, that night. And our two manager at the time explained that there was like several vineyards in the area that were open to visitors like us for guided tours and that. And we were like, that. nah, I'll just stay on bus, we'll chill out and that. And she's like, come on, it'd be nice. See some of the local culture and that. I'm like, no, I'll leave it out. We'll just have a kick about here with ball and that. And then she says, there'll be free wine tasting. And we're at like, free what? She says, wine tasting. And we're like, well, you should have said. You should have said. Let's go what we're waiting for. So after a quick phone call, we set off in taxis, like a load of excited school kids, to this local family-owned vineyard. And it was a beautiful place. It was like We met the owner, little French chap, can't remember his name. But he took us through to his cellars and he started telling us about the history of the place. He told us how the business had been in his family for many generations, talking about you know why the climate around there, that part of France was perfect for the type of grapes that they were growing, you know what I mean, all that stuff. And we were just wanting to get stuck in, you know what I mean? We were just 
we just wanted a drink. And he's talking to us like we're proper connoisseurs and all that, you know what I mean? And he was telling us about the kind of wood that the barrels are made of. And we're like, whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> Bit ignorant, really, but it, I'm, I'm telling you the truth. It's what, what it was like. It wasn't me, it was the other four. <laughs> and eventually, he takes us to a side room, and that's where all the glasses are and all these bottles, various bottles of wine on the tables. A couple of his staff there to help, help out with everything. And he starts talking about the first wine that we're going to sample. One of the ladies starts pouring it all out for us and that. And while the boss is explaining that if you, if you hold the glass up to the light and do this and do that, we've necked it, it's gone. And he's not noticed yet. He's talking about the, you know, the, the wonderful aromas and all that. He's got his nose stuck in a big wine glass, like oh, a bit of Chateau Neuf de Pape or whatever it's called, swilling around the bottom of this glass. So we, we've necked two glasses by now. <laughs> all the band members like sniggering like naughty kids to each other and that. And the main man's explaining that this bottle is about to open it's like from 1957 or something. And we're like that. Have you not got out a bit newer? <laughs> and as it goes on this for over an hour. And he took it all really well, this fella. You know, he's like standing vigilantly aside while we completely rinsed his stock of, you know, wine tasting samples. And I remember his expression. It was almost as if he knew that he was taking one for the team of all the generations of family that had gone before him. You know, centuries of building this incredible place which creates some of the best wines in the world. So that one day five Herberts from Oldham like us can walk in and completely take the piss. And anyway, so we got offered the chance to buy wine on the way out. More like that. Are you joking, mate? We'll get it from Tesco and get back home and that. Saves us having to carry it about. And I'm sure we weren't the first group of, you know, wine tasting tourists to have to be out back to our cars outside that place. But that's what happened. And as we left, we, we thanked the chap. And we started playing a gig tonight in town. If you want to come, there's the name of the venue. We'll stick your name on Gezi. And he said, you what? I said, stick your name on Gezi. That took a bit of explaining that to a French one. But we said, we'll put your name on the guest list. <laughs> and so he got the message. And we, got, we went to the venue, did the sound check, killed a bit of time, tried to sober up a bit. And then about 10 minutes before we drew on stage, there's a knock on dressing room door. Blow it walks in. And it's him, it's our friend from the vineyard. Shakes our hands and asks if we've had a good day. I'm like, top mate, your gaff's cool. Thanks for having us and all that. And he brought his mate with him. And he looked like he enjoyed the occasional drinky poos, this other chap that was with him. So as we walked out on stage, we told, we said to him, like, enjoy the gig, you know, if you, if you need to use our toilet and dressing room, you can do, get yourself a drink if you want. You know what's coming next, don't you? So about that time, our drinks rider would have been, amongst other things, it would have been like 48 cans of quality beer, maybe more, it might have been 96 actually in them days. Two bottles of quality red wine, two bottles of quality white wine, a bottle of vodka, a bottle of JD, a couple of other bits and pieces and... That was just the drinks part of the rider in the dressing room every night. So we did the gig, come off stage, open the dressing room door, and there's the vineyard man spread out on an armchair, daft smile on his big red face. His mates lay on the floor on the other side of the dressing room, and they both totally hammered our rider. All whiskey were gone. There's hardly any vodka left, no sign of any wine whatsoever. Vineyard man's gibbering away in French, us not understanding a single word he's saying, but him gesticulating, having a drink with his right hand and giving us the V sign with his left hand, laughing at us. Him and his mate both there, like the French equivalent of the Chuckle Brothers, and he completely beating us at our own game. I've never been much of a connoisseur, me, when it comes to wine. I do like the red wine, but there's nothing that me and Mrs Boone love better than getting three bottles of Toro Loco from uh, Aldi, £3.89 a bottle, I think it is at the moment. Top night in for just over a tenner. Red, red wine. Oh, Makes me forget that I 
When I worked as a radio presenter for XFM Manchester, I got a phone call one day to say that we had a guest coming in the afternoon to do a, a short acoustic session for a few listeners and that I would be interviewing him. So I'm like that on the phone, right, so you want me to come in earlier? Yeah, quarter to one, right. Is Cocker not available? <laughs> so anyway, this kid was about to put out his first single on a, a major record label and he'd been working for a few years on the gig circuit around the country and he was starting to get noticed. He'd only just turned 20. So I said on the phone, I said, what's he called? And he said, Ed Sheeran. I said, Eddie Sheeran, never heard of him. Is he any good? And they said, he's all right. It seems like a nice lad. Girls seem to like him. So I said, okay, I'll do a bit of prep and I'll see you in a bit. So I made a cup of coffee, got my laptop out, sat in the kitchen, started reading about him online. Born in Ebden Bridge, dropped out of school at 16, moved to London, did a lot of gigs in people's front rooms, slept on a lot of couches, really likes Nisloppy, the JCB song. I'm thinking, oh, fucking hell, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> so I got some pictures up on screen and I shouted, wife, I said, Charlie, can we look at this? Come and have a look at this. And she comes in, she said, who's that? I said, it's a kid called Eddie Shearer. I'm going to interview him today. I've got to go in early. She says, is he any good? I said, I don't know. I've not heard him yet. Girls seem to like him. She said, why is that? I said, I don't know. It must be his music. <laughs> anyway, so I drove into XFM three hours earlier than usual because this kid was coming to see me. No extra money, right? And on my way into XFM, the security man spotted me. Boon Army. They always used to do that, aren't we? Boon Army. Every sentence started with that. Who have you got in today, Mr. Boone? I said, Ed Sheeran from Ebden Bridge. And he said, Eddie Sheeran, never heard of him. Is he any good? I said, I don't know, but girls seem to like him. And he says, why is that? I, said, I don't know, it must be his music. So I walked into her office, right, first floor. Loads of young girls are waiting eagerly for him. And I made my way around to the, the live performance area. And there he was waiting for me. Stood there with his scruffy little acoustic guitar around his neck. And this big gonk of red hair on his head. Big smiling face, big smiling moon face. And he says, hi, I'm Ed. And I said, Ed, I'm Clint, lovely to meet you. And we walked through to the studio where we did a, a little interview before the live performance. Now, this was just before he released the A-Team single, which was a single which made him an international star. During the interview, I gave him a few tips, like I did with a lot of the new artists that were popping in. How to survive this cruel industry and come out the other end doing all right, you know, like what I've done, that kind of business. Finished the interview, took him through to the performance area where the, the girls, 20 or so girls, a couple of lads, had been ushered in and they're all sat cross-legged on the floor, got Ed into position and introduced him and off he went. And the moment he started, literally the moment he started, it was obvious that what all this was about because everyone in the room instantly became transfixed, mesmerised, not just the, the fans that had come see him, but the staff, myself, just mesmerised by this in incredible talent. It's hard to imagine any 20-year-old having more talent and star quality than what we saw that day in that room in Salford. And it was quite obvious then, really, that it would only be a matter of time before he became a, an household name because with that sort of magnetism and that talent, every single person who's going to be in the same room as, as him, whether it's going to be an arena or someone's front room in Aberdeen, everybody in that room would walk away loving the man and his music. It's true, though, isn't it? Because you never hear anybody coming out of a, an Ed Sheeran gig saying, oh, his guitar playing's a bit shit, isn't it? Or, you know, his singing's not right good, is it? He'd do a brush in his hair. Everyone walks away completely loving him, don't they? And that's what we did that day. Ed stuck around after the performance, did all his selfies and the autographs with the fans at XFM, said his goodbyes and left. And we left too, me, a dozen or so staff, 20 young people who'd watched him. And we watched him go off and, and become one of the most successful recording artists of all time. He's a beautiful man, that Ed Sheeran, and it's most definitely not just about his music. White lips, pale face, breathing in 
snowflakes, burnt lungs is our taste. Lights gone, days end, struggling to pay rent. Long nights, strange men. They say she's in the class A team, stuck in her daydream. Been this way since A. After 20 years or so of being a massive REM fan, I finally got to meet Michael Stipe and the band in 2003. And it should have been an amazing moment. But meeting one of my all-time heroes didn't quite go the way that I'd planned it. It was Glastonbury, 2003, June the 27th. So it was the day before my 44th birthday. And the Inspirals had got back together after like eight or nine years apart. So it was quite a big year for us, quite exciting. And a lot of fans coming out of the woodwork to see us. And well, we're on the pyramid stage at Glastonbury, so we were doing all right, you know what I mean? Anyway, so we're there, everybody's happy. The gig was well received by the few thousand of people that had made the effort to crawl out of the, the tents to see us because it's early in the afternoon. And our intentions originally been to get on site in the morning, do the gig, and then do a quick getaway, really. Even though it was the most famous festival in the world, sometimes after doing this rock and roll thing for a couple of decades, you just want to just want to do one, right? You get back to wife and kids or wherever your particular heaven might be. And I'd not even taken the time to find out who was the headline band at Glastonbury that year. I knew that REM was somewhere on the bill, but I didn't realise on the day that we were on. My wife, Charlie, was with me. And our plan, like I said, had been to do the gig, hang out for a bit and get off. And then someone mentioned that REM were headlining the pyramid stage the same day that we'd done it. So we were still in our dressing room porter cabin at this point, backstage in a VIP paddock. So 15 or so porter cabins with there four bits of paper on the front with bands' names on and all that. So we're thinking, let's have a quick look around here so we can find the REM one. And there it was, sure enough, a porter cabin with REM stuck on front of it. A4 sheet, blue tight. And we figured out it's only going to be a matter of time before the band arrive in this area. So we thought we'd stick around, you know, not, not stalking, right? Just waiting to meet our heroes. And I said, we, Craig Gill, our drummer, he had an equally unhealthy obsession with the band, with REM, to the extent where he'd, he'd even named his first child Georgia after the American state from which REM originated. And better still, Georgia was with us. She was only like six at the time, I think. So we stuck around through the afternoon, drunk beer, waited, drunk some more beer, waited a bit more. Me, Mrs. Boone, Mr. and Mrs. Gill and Georgia, who incidentally brought along some lightsabers. Now, I don't know where she'd gotten from, but she had two full-size lightsabers with her, like kids do at festivals. They carry all sorts of junk about, don't they? So we're playing lightsabers with her. And uh, I entertained Georgia with one of my party tricks at the time, a spectacular party trick, that thing where you throw peanuts or sweets really high up in the air and catch them in your mouth, you know, like a dog. I'm really good at that. And I had a load of peanuts out of the dressing room off the rider. <laughs> and it's one of those things that I excel at. People think I'm a great keyboard player, but I'm not. I just blag it. It's just three fingers in it on my right hand and a bunch of simple chords in my left. But when it comes to throwing peanuts really high into the air and catching them in your mouth like a dog, I'm the fucking best, right? I'm probably world champion at it. I try. Have you ever bumped into me? Get the selfie and all that. Get the selfie, get the autographs out there and then get your notes out right and I'll show you. Anyway, so <laughs> eventually Peter Buck and Mike Mills appeared in this backstage area and me and Craig are going, yeah, yeah, they're here, let's have it. So we go swanning over, George is swanning behind us with gorgeous long red hair and lightsabers and we introduced ourselves and they knew our band. We, you know, we told them about this band. I was like, oh yeah, we like you guys because Craig and me were buzzing, man, buzzing. No sign of Stipe yet, so we just carried on drinking and whatever. And you can always tell that like, when Michael Stipe enters any environment, he's one of them people, and he? He's a bit godlike. Time stops, 
ticking. The world stops turning, don't it? Birds drop out of the sky. Well, if you're as much of a fan as I am of REM, when Michael Stipe walks into wherever you are, that's what it feels like. Right? Stipe walks in, me and Craig are like, oh, fucking hell, he's here, Craig. Look, it's fucking Stipe. Stipe, man. And he's like, it's Stipe, isn't it? Michael Stipe. <laughs> we're like Beavis and Butthead. We're there sniggering. And because we've stood with two of Stipe's best friends in the world, like his band members, he walks straight over to us. And the enemy photographer was with us, quick-minded enemy photographer, starts snapping away, leaping into action, you know, like they do. And he got this most amazing photograph of Stipe and Georgia having a lightsaber battle with Buck and Mills. It was Georgia and R.E.M. doing lightsabers. And that photograph became the, the photo on the enemy's annual Glastonbury 2003 souvenir poster for your bedroom wall pull-out poster keepsake thing. You know they do every year? They do a poster on from Glastonbury with a big picture of Glastonbury from the sky on one side and a you know, highlight on the other side. That was it, that picture, Georgia with R.E.M. And then after that had been, when we got the picture out of the way, we, the conversation started. And a second conversation, it was like, it, it began with Craig introducing himself. And then I think he decided he was going to tell Michael Stipe his complete life story, right? And in his mind, he was probably saying something like, Hi, Mike, I'm Craig Gill, big fan of yours since uh, 1985. Just like to thank you so much for all the amazing music and the incredible way you and your bandmates have inspired me. as You know, all that kind of stuff. And I love you guys so much. I name my daughter. That's what I think it sounded like in his head. But what came out, and I, I heard it, what came out was, oh, I'm going to find my fucking old George, oh, my kid, oh, yeah, fucking drugs, mate. <laughs> it was brilliant. It was like the most amazing, breathtaking display ever of a man destroyed, you know, from several hours of ingesting alcohol and stuff, trying to hold a sensible conversation with his hero. And I said to Stipe, can you understand what he's saying? And he stood there shaking his head. He had his hand on his chin. He just went, nope. <laughs> and me and Craig stood there giggling like a couple of kids, like Beavis and Butthead. And then Craig says, yeah, I can't talk to you. Introduce yourself. Tell him, tell him who you are. So I, I start introducing myself to Michael, saying, I'm Clint Booth. And Georgia interrupts immediately, saying, Clint, show Michael that trick that you're really good at where you throw peanuts really high up in the air and catch them in your mouth like a dog. And I said, oh, I said to Stipe, you don't want to see that, do you, mate? And he's like, yeah, yeah, man, do it. Do it, man, let's see it, man. So I started doing it, throwing peanuts really high up and catching them in my mouth like a dog. <laughs> a big, stupid, drunk dog from, from the north of England. And I kept missing. I kept missing them going in my eyes and one caught my tooth, really hurt me, but I didn't let them got salt in my eye. But I carried on and then one bounces off Michael Stipe's head. And I'm like, did, did that just happen? And... Anyway, he, at that point, he said, look, it's great meeting you guys. You know, have a great day. And he walks off. Michael Stipe walks off to the the relative safety of his porter cabin. Now, Andy, did you hear about this one? Tell me how you locked in the pines. Andy, are you goofing on Elvis,
That was R.E.M. And right now on the phone, my partner in crime for that anecdote and uh, my long-term business partner in Spiral Carpets drummer, Craig Gill. You're famous now, Craig, as well as being a, in a, a top seminal psychedelic band from Oldham in Spiral Carpets. You've got these Manchester music tours up and running now, haven't you? So you're, you're doing like guided tours around the Manchester area for music fans from all over the world. How's all that going? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, that's, it keeps me busy. I mean, that's, uh, that's my day job when I'm not... Uh you're wasting the time with you losers um, making music. Yeah, so uh, yeah, go back to the uh, back to the day job when we're not out and about on Inspiral's duty. Yeah. Uh, Manchester Music Tours, I started um, about 10 years ago now, um, initially just walking tours around Manchester, which um, encompassed most of the Manchester bands, a lot of tales and anecdotes of my experiences yeah. working at all these venues. I also used to DJ at the Hacienda, so uh, quite a sort of uh, personal tour, really. And then um, I started to branch out into specialist tours. I do a Smith Morrissey tour every week, which is probably the most popular one. Um, and uh, more recently, Oasis, Stone Roses, uh, Joy Division. I've just put together a James tour as well for a one off walking tour when they play at the arena in May. Right. And uh, we've got a Beatles tour as well, which we just um, added to the roster, which is uh, quite interesting. Brilliant. Tell us that story about uh, something funny that happened towards the end of last year when you're in the middle of a tour. You're outside the boardwalk. Yeah, it was on uh, an Oasis tour, and we go down to the boardwalk, and uh, and this particular day was it was horrible. It was just completely throwing it down, and massive puddles everywhere. And it was in two minds whether to actually get out of the bus or not on this day but uh, anyway we did we braved the rain there was about 10 people on um, on I think it was a private oasis tour and so I'm kind of stood there outside and the boardwalk with my hood up and just, just doing me talking and this this car pulls up it's like a, a bit of a sort of sporty car I don't know what type of car it was maybe like a um, a Lexus or something like that um, and I was sort of noticed this car pulling up and slowing down and stopping outside and uh, I just thought it was somebody that was going to um, ask for directions, which happens quite a lot. You know, you're there talking and you're, you're in the middle of this great story building <laughs> up to the punchline and somebody will just look, wind the window down and say, oh, which way's Bridge Street, mate? And then you tell them to give them directions and come back and you completely lost where you're up to. So <laughs> on this particular um, occasion, so I turned it back on the car and carried on talking. And I could... I, I know the car wasn't moving, it stayed there, and then I could hear the windows going down, so I just carried on doing my talk, and I stood, Craig! And I thought, so what are my name? Turn on, Craig! And I turned round, and it was Ian Brown with a, with a car full of lads. <laughs> so, up there. so I didn't know what to do, because I thought, if I go over speaking to him, he'd probably get dragged out of the car, and all the people on the tour would just all want selfies and things like that. And I sort of looked at him, and he was, he just said, oh, I just thought I'd say hello, and then I looked round, and all the people were just too gobsmacked, I think, to talk, to say anything. So went over and uh, said hello, shook his hand and that. And then uh, just before he drove off, uh, one of the guys on the tour went, Ian Brown, you're a legend. Let me shake your hand. Ran over to him, shook his hand. So I'm coming to see him next year. Yeah. And, and that was that. And he wound uh, his window up and, uh, and drove off. So uh, the people on the tour were just like, right, we can just end the tour. Now, it was only the second stop on the tour, so... It only just started, but they were saying, like, yeah, we can finish the tour now, that's it. It's just uh, <laughs> on our mind. <laughs> Brilliant. How can you follow that? So before we go, Craig, before you get off, uh, what's the best way for people to uh, check out your Manchester Music Tours? There's a website in there. Yeah, manchestermusictours.com. Cool. Or um, 
at NCR Music Tours on Twitter as well. You can contact me on there. Right, well, keep up the good work. No doubt I'll be seeing you soon. I think we're going to be doing a bit of jamming, aren't we, soon? Yes, yes. <laughs> time, to, uh, time to write some new material, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, let's get... We need to, we've got some more bills to pay, haven't we? So we need to get another record yeah. out. <laughs> right, listen. Craig Gill, Inspiral Carpets and Manchester Music Tours. Have a top day and I'll see you soon, brother, yeah? Right, cheers, Clint, mate. See you later, man. Thank you, sir. Cheers, bye. So every week on the podcast, I like to pick a song that I've uh, been involved with making over the years and talk about what inspired it. I know that some songwriters just leave it to the the listeners to decide whatever meaning they want to put to it, which is fine. But I think sometimes it's nice to just know what where it came from. Really. So today I'm going to tell you about a song, an Inspiral Carpet song called Two Worlds Collide, which I co-wrote. The Inspirals have always been big in Greece. Uh, we've gigged out there a lot of times over the last 25 years or so. And on one visit in 1991, I got the idea to start writing a song about the the massive contradiction between like the gods on the hill, like the Acropolis, the, the Parthenon and all that. Well, just a few hundred yards away at the bottom of the hill, literally, you've got some of the poorest people in the in the world begging for food and money. And I mean, every city in the world's got it. I mean, every, every city in the world's got a similar picture, London, LA, Manchester. And I found out back then that most of these homeless people on the streets of Athens back then were actually from Albania, so in the late 1980s, after the, the fall of communism, due to massive economic problems, there was massive migration from several countries around Greece where people left to look for a better life and food. And a lot of them came to Greece. And I tried to write into the song this feeling of desperation that a person must feel when you, you, you're starving and cold. To be that desperate where you're stealing in order to survive. And then the closing line is that submission. I guess that makes me a bad man. Yeah, I'm stealing. I guess that makes me a bad man. The original chorus that I wrote went, if that makes me a bad man, if that makes me a thief, that's the way it shall be. That was what the original chorus was going to be. Stealing because of hunger, not greed, and people walking across countries, thousands of miles. Sounds familiar now, doesn't it? 25 years after I wrote it, it still goes on, doesn't it? It goes on in every generation. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about my experience, didn't I, selling the big issue in Manchester, uh, and how I could see people looking the other way, turning a blind eye. And there's a line in the song, Two Worlds Collide, which is, I wonder sometimes how so many could be so blind. The original title of the song, when I wrote it, was called Aphrodite's Children. So it was an affectionate nod to one of my favourite bands, Aphrodite's Child, which is this wonderful Greek psychedelic band from the late 60s, early 70s, featuring Demis Roussos on lead vocals, and he played bass at the same time. A young chap called Vangelis on keyboards. Check him out on the, the Spotify playlist that I put together for this episode. There's a couple of tracks on there from Aphrodite's Child. And I thought the title, Aphrodite's Children, was a nice reference to the fact that, you know, the beggars and the rich people and us, some lads from Manchester, we're all children of the same thing, whatever it is that put us here. And Aphrodite is the, the Greek goddess of love. So we're all uh, children, aren't we, in a funny sort of way? And when we came to start working on the songs for the third Inspiral studio album, which was Revenge of the Goldfish, the boss of Mute Records, Daniel Miller, sat in on some of the sessions with us. Daniel's also a very well-respected record producer, so his input in the studio was always really valuable. 
And our guitarist Graham had brought a song in which he'd been working on. And the title of that song was Two Worlds Collide. Now in the rehearsal sessions, Daniel came up with this idea, which we'd never done before and we've not done it since, but he suggested we take the main line from the chorus from Graham's song, Two Worlds Collide, and stick it into the song that I'd written. And we tried it, reluctantly on my part, and it worked beautifully. Daniel was right. It, it, you know, we did it. We took two songs, cut them up, mixed them together, and a gorgeous record was born. And the title, Two Worlds Collide, it couldn't really have been more appropriate given the way that the song came about. So the Boom Boys are cracking on nicely with this band of theirs. They're still called the BPs. They've got Keegan, the friend, on drums. Hector, who's nine, is uh, playing lead guitar. Oscar's playing bass and telling Keegan how to play the drums. And uh, Oscar's also the lyricist and the singer. The, the room that I'm sitting in here in, in my house, it's in the basement, and we've been in this house 10 years. And when we moved in all, that, all those years ago, the first thing I did was get this room soundproofed and damp-proofed so that I could use it as a music studio which didn't happen, it became a storage room. That's, it's just been the nicest storage room in Stockport for 10 years. So a few weeks ago, I eventually got around to emptying it. I got a decorator and to paint it, because I've been too busy to do it myself. And it's all, it looks brilliant. I've got it all ready for me to move back into as my studio, you know, Daddy's Den. But what's happened now? The BPs have moved in, aren't they? So I'm sat here squashed in between a drum kit, some bass amp, loads of guitars, which is fine, isn't it? I mean, they're my boys and I want them to do this. But yesterday was the first official day in the studio, so they had a couple of um, incidents. One is that one of Oscar's bass strings snapped, which he wasn't expecting. He thought the bass strings would last forever, and he was distraught. But, you know, I was out at the time, but my wife explained to me that that happens, that the bass strings are consumables, as our drum skins. Don't worry about them. So we had that, and I'm sat here now looking at this Squire bass with a big ripped-off string on it. But the other thing that happened, little Cassius, who's only five, proper little studio rat, he was like running about and he managed to smash his nose onto the microphone. So he ended up with a bloody nose. There's blood all over the studio floor. It looks like the flipping libertines have been in, man, I tell you. But I'll keep you posted anyway. They are writing songs now and it's sounding good. And as I keep saying, I'm so proud of them. It's brilliant. Okay, it's time for me to get off. Uh, thanks again for downloading this podcast. If you like it, please subscribe if you've not already done so. And it'd be really good if you could leave us some uh, feedback on the old iTunes thing. That Spotify playlist I keep going on about, it's uh, worth checking out. All the little tracks that you've been hearing on this episode are on the playlist in full, and there's other tracks. There's also some of the other stuff that I've been talking about and things that come to mind while I'm chatting to you. Thanks again to Red's True Barbecue and Distorted Productions for helping Storytime with Boone to happen every week. Next week, something special. Once a month, I record my podcast live at Red's True Barbecue Restaurant in Manchester. Last month, my special guest was Bez. Check that one out. Episode 5. Next Wednesday night, that's the 9th of March... 2016 if you're listening in the uh, distant future <laughs> you've missed it i'll be joined by a uh, british broadcasting legend terry christian for a live face-to-face chat at red street barbecue terry's one of the most articulate 
passionate and outspoken broadcasters in the industry, as you probably know. You could be one of only 50 people who will be invited along to join us. Tickets are free and they'll be allocated on a first-come, first-serve basis. For all the information and to apply for tickets, go to boon.eventbrite.co.uk. That's boon.eventbrite.co.uk. Bright is B-R-I-T-E. Use the password Terry. And you could be sat having a drink and a chat with me and Terry in Manchester next Wednesday night. And don't worry if you're not lucky enough to get tickets. The next episode of Storytime in Boone, that'll be episode 10, will be that entire conversation. Me and Terry Christian dropped into your inbox the day after it happens. That'll be Thursday. Yeah, right. Before I finish this week's podcast, a little shout out. I got a message from John Watts on Twitter, a.k.a. J Raw Creative and he says Clint I'm running 96 kilometres in five days for the crisis charity that's the homeless charity I'm definitely going to be listening to your story time podcast while I'm on my way any chance of a shout out to help me through my pleasure John done it there you go did you hear it did you hear it <laughs> wind it back good luck brother and uh, what a lovely thing to do for such a great cause okay so regular listeners will know that I like to finish each podcast with some new music I've done a bit of work over the last few years uh, for a company called BIM, B-I-M-M, and uh, it's British and Irish Modern Music Institute. They've got six colleges, Brighton, Bristol, Dublin, Manchester, Berlin and London. Uh, they've got over 4,500 students at the moment currently studying all aspects of the music industry, from performance right through to what happens behind the scenes at record companies and publishing and all that. And through my work with BIM, I get to hear some of the fantastic music which is being made by the students. I'm going to close this episode with a track that I came across last week from one of the Manchester-based BIM students. Her name is Amber Lane McIver. You can look her up on Twitter, Amber Lane hyphen McIver. She's on Twitter, she's on SoundCloud. There's some great stuff on YouTube as well if you get a chance to have a look at it. Uh, check her out doing a song called Arms of the Angels on YouTube. It's a cover version. And towards the end of it, she gets a text. It's brilliant. It's lovely. Amber tells me she's now put together a band with some of her fellow BIM students. They're calling themselves Amber, and they're currently working on an album together. Their influences range from Moby all the way through to Jamie XX. So the track I'm going to leave you with this week is called Tree of Life, and this is Amber. Storytime with Boone, with Red's True Barbecue. Subscribe now on iTunes.
Should I try to leave? Should I try? 